Uh, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word today. Um, in the spirit of the Thanksgiving holiday uh, that's coming up this week, I want to take us to a familiar passage in Scripture that talks about the power of gratitude. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me uh, to the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me, but um, if you're following along on your phone and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. This is the reading of God's Word. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Amen. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. Um, if you've been with us the past few months, you know that we just wrapped up a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and originally I wanted to title this sermon, uh, Gratitude, the Tenth Fruit, um, but our staff was probably like, you know, not a good idea to add to the Bible, so, you know, I was like, you're right, you're right, got me there. Um, but that being said, um, I do think there's an important connection to be made between gratitude and the actualization of the Spirit's work in us, right? That our ability to experience and really live into the fullness of God's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is profoundly impacted by the presence and practice of gratitude in our lives, now, uh, let me set up the scene for us a bit um, for our text today. By this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Word has gotten out that he's this great teacher and miracle worker, and he encounters these 10 men with leprosy. And we've talked about it before, but leprosy in that time uh, wasn't just a physical ailment. It was a scarlet letter. It said something about you as a human being. It meant you were unclean. Uh, it meant uh, you were cursed by God, that you were a threat to your entire community. In fact, if a leper came within 50 paces of you or your family, you were legally allowed to stone that person to death. Okay, so it was a serious, um, people saw it very seriously. Um, lepers couldn't get close to anyone. They were forced to live outside the camp. They lost their name, their job, their family, their reputation, their community. It was complete emotional and spiritual separation, and only a priest had the authority to pronounce a leper clean or unclean. Okay, so right off the bat, that should give you a little bit of an idea as to why the lepers who met Jesus stood at a distance. 
Okay, and so they're standing at a distance, and they call out to him in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when Jesus sees them, he responds by saying, go show yourselves to the priests. Go show yourselves to the priests. Very classic Jesus response. One thing you'll realize about Jesus uh, when you read the Gospels is that he never heals two people the same way. In fact, he never heals two lepers the same way. Because there's another story about Jesus encountering a leper, and in that story, he actually touches the leper. And that's significant because for this leper who's never been touched in his entire life, it means that someone's willing to get close to him. But here, not only does Jesus just yell back from a distance, which is interesting, but he doesn't even heal the lepers on the spot. He just says, go show yourselves to the priests. He gives them a set of instructions. And it's not Go show yourselves to the priest because once you get there, you'll be healed of your leprosy. It's not you're clean now. It's not look at your skin. There's nothing there. It's not, hey, go do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll be healed of your leprosy. It's just go show yourselves to the priests. There's no timeline, no plan. It's just go. And we read that as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. And even though all ten were cleansed, we read that only one out of the ten comes back to say thank you, to which Jesus responds with a piercing question, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go, your faith has healed you. Now, the first time I read this, I thought to myself, wait, why did Jesus say your faith has healed you? Like, did he take back his healing? Did he not end up healing the other nine? Why did he say to the guy who returns, your faith has healed you? I thought he was already healed, right? Why would he need to be healed again? And this is where you have to go to the original Greek to understand the nuances of what the text is saying. The word for healed used in verse 19 is actually a different Greek word than the words that have been used up to that point. The word translated healed in verse 19 is the word sozo, which means salvation. It's the same word used in the story of Zacchaeus a couple chapters later when Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Sozo has come to this house. So when Jesus looks at this man who returns and says, your faith has healed you, he's not talking about a physical healing, he's talking about a spiritual one. All ten were cleansed, but only one was saved. All ten got a miracle, but only one got the Messiah. All ten received healing, but only one was made whole. And the difference was gratitude. You know, there is nothing more foundational to the Christian life than two simple words. Thank you. Karl Barth wrote that if the essence of God is grace and the essence of human beings as God's people is our gratitude. Okay, and so if you're taking notes, um, we're going to unpack this a little bit. I just have three quick points. The first is, where is gratitude experienced? Where is gratitude experienced? I think for many of us, we think that gratitude can only be experienced and expressed in moments and seasons when things are going well. Right? We think gratitude can only be an appropriate response on the mountaintops of our lives. When we finally get the job we've been waiting for, or we get that degree, or we get that house, when our relationships are in order, or our business is thriving. But I want you to notice where this story is located. Okay? It's in the first line, very subtle. 
As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. Between Galilee and Samaria. It's easy to look past that detail, but it's a very important one, okay? The border between Galilee and Samaria divided two groups of people that literally hated each other. Okay, they did not agree on anything. It was like the left and the right in our country right now. Okay, and the border was the center of all of that hostility and hatred, and it's here in the midst of that tension that we get this profound story about gratitude. And it makes you wonder if the deepest kind of gratitude isn't experienced on the mountaintops of our lives, but in the valleys, in the low places, in the places of brokenness and grief, in the liminal spaces that are full of uncertainty and doubt. Could it be that these spaces are divine appointments that allow us to experience the power of gratitude? And we see this pattern throughout Scripture, right? That it's often people who have the worst circumstances. It's often people whose lives are in the pit, in the places of deepest pain and sorrow, who seem to be the most thankful. You know, um, one thing I've always found fascinating uh, when you read the Gospels is that whenever Jesus performs a miracle, more often than not, he gives thanks before the miracle. Not as a response to the miracle, but before the miracle, right? Before the desired outcome takes place. Okay, when he feeds the 5,000, the disciples are freaking out because they're like, how are we going to feed all these people? They bring him these five loaves and two fish, and they're like, what do we do? What do we do? And Jesus takes the loaves, and before he breaks the loaves, he looks up to heaven, and he thanks God. Before the miracle, right in the middle of the disciples' doubt, right? There's another story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And Jesus gets there, and everyone is weeping, right? It's basically a funeral service because he's too late. And they're like, Jesus, if you had come earlier, like Lazarus could have been saved, but he's dead, right? And everyone's weeping. People are upset. They're angry. They're frustrated. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but before he calls him out of the tomb, before he calls him out of the tomb, he prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He gives thanks before the miracle. He, he gives thanks in the center of grief, pain, and loss. When was the last time you thanked God before the miracle? When was the last time you thanked God before the desired outcome took place? When was the last time you experienced gratitude in the valley? Because if there's anything this story tells us, it's that there's an opportunity for gratitude in the places we would least expect. You know, I experienced it this week. Um, I mentioned before that our, our whole family had the flu, and normally this would have been cause for a lot of inner complaining, because whenever the family is sick, it throws all of our schedules out of whack. We have to cancel plans with friends. Um, we have to keep the kids home from school. We have to work from home. We got to wake up in the middle of the night to give them medicine, make sure they're hydrated, and it, it's just, it's chaos. But because I knew I was going to be preaching this Sunday on this text, I asked God to open my eyes in the midst of the chaos to experience gratitude. And he began to do it. You know, the first night as I put the kids down and I, I covered them with their heated blanket, right, I thanked God for technology. 
I thank God for warmth. I said, thank you for this bed. Thank you for this home. You know, we had staff members and family members throughout the week come by to drop off food. And every time that happened, I said, thank you for community, for friends who care about us. You know, uh, because my wife was sick too, you know, we, we had to cancel everything. And on Thursday night, we're sitting there, you know, watching Love is Blind together. And, you know, we were like, you know, this is the first time, I think, in a year that we haven't had anyone over at our place all week. And we were like, thank you, Jesus, that we finally have this time just us. You know, thank you for these forced Sabbaths. Sometimes it's the places of greatest chaos and pain that become the very portals of gratitude in our lives. Okay? Doesn't mean gratitude is easy, though. Which brings me to the second point. What are the obstacles to gratitude? What are the biggest obstacles to gratitude? When you think about the magnitude of this miracle, it's almost hard to believe that only one out of ten came back to say thank you. It's a horrible ratio for Jesus, okay? You know, like, you have to understand what has happened to these lepers is the equivalent of winning the lotto. Okay, many of you probably heard about the $2 billion lotto. That was won literally, like, 15 minutes from my house. I should have bought a lotto ticket, you know? Um, but, but these guys, their lives are forever changed. And yet only one came back. And what that tells us is that gratitude, as simple as it seems is really hard, is really unnatural. You know, and when I read stories like this in Scripture, I always try to, like, dive into the story myself, and I, I started to ask myself, okay, if I'm one of the nine that didn't turn around, but I look down and I see that my skin disease is healed, like, what would stop me from turning around, right? Like, what would stop me from turning around, going back, to say thank you to the one who literally changed my life forever. And what's really frustrating about the Bible sometimes and frustrating about this text is that they don't always give you the answers. You actually don't know why. They don't tell you. And a lot of scholars have speculated and debated. Uh, but based on the information we have, I think there are three probable reasons why these nine didn't turn around. And I think it's the same reasons you and I struggle with gratitude today. The first probable explanation is that they didn't turn around because the healing wasn't immediate. It was delayed. Like a lot of times in the Gospels, Jesus will touch someone, they're healed. Boom. He'll speak a word, healed. He'll put mud on your eyes, healed. It's like immediate. And I think if Jesus healed these 10 immediately, I'm sure all of them would have been like, thank you, Jesus. But he doesn't do that. He says, go show yourselves to the priests. There's a delay. And it says, as they went, they were healed. And because the provision was delayed, it's possible they didn't connect all the dots. And we do this all the time. When we pray for something, we want God to answer that prayer immediately on the spot, exactly the way we want him to. Right? Like, on our timetable, you know, like we pray for a husband and we want to open our eyes and a beautiful man walks by, bumps into us, and we're like, oh my gosh, thank you, Jesus. You know, we want that. Right? I remember when I was young, um, I used to watch videos of my favorite guitar heroes. Um, and, and I would pray, 
Lord, I want to play like them. Help me to play like them. And, you know, because I was, like, young and naive and I, I really believed that God had the power to do it, I would pick up my guitar and I would just assume I could play exactly like them. And I was really disappointed when I couldn't, right? And I was like, God, God isn't there. He doesn't love me. Two years down the line, though, my parents take me to a church where our youth pastor happened to be a classical guitar major who happened to have an extra guitar lying around that he lent me, who happened to teach me all these licks, who gave me my first opportunity leading worship. And now years had gone by, and all of a sudden, by the time I had reached the level of mastery that I was looking for on my instrument, I had forgotten all about that initial prayer. And when people asked me, I, I used to say, and it was just good luck and a lot of hard work on my end. I had forgotten God because the provision was delayed. God doesn't always work according to our timetable and our demands. And sometimes because the provision is delayed, we assume he's not listening. We're like the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness, right? Already forgetting. They're only there for 40 years, but they've already forgotten that God rescued them from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. How easily we forget when the provision is delayed. You know, many of you sitting in this room, believe it or not, are the answers to prayers that were prayed long ago by your parents and your grandparents and your friends. And I would venture to guess that some of those who prayed for you never got to see their prayers come to fruition with their own eyes. But here you are. Right? So I think that's one possible explanation as to why the nine didn't turn back, because they didn't connect the dots. Second potential explanation, I think, is that they didn't feel the need to because they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Jesus never asked them, hey, after you get healed, come back and say thank you. He didn't say that. He said, go show yourselves to the priests. So if I'm them, I can totally see myself being like, well, I did exactly what Jesus told me to do. I'm healed. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is how it was supposed to turn out, Right? There's a part of them that feels like they deserve to be healed, a part of them that feels like this healing was a reward for their obedience, that they deserve to be reintegrated back into their communities to have their lives back, right? And I think this is often the mindset we have when we think about our accomplishments and our achievements, when we think about what we have or where we are, you know, where we are today. We think it's because we worked hard for it or because we did the right things or we did things the right way. We begin to take credit for things God did and we attribute all of our success to our good planning, our intelligence, our gifts, maybe even our obedience to God to the point where we believe, well, God owes us for being obedient to him all these years. So that could definitely be a reason as well. But I think the third explanation, and I think this is a very reasonable explanation for why the nine didn't turn around, is that once they were healed, they became more enamored by the gift than the giver. More enamored by the gift than the giver. Can you imagine, right, these people who've been cut off from their entire community, their entire lives, who've been outcasted, and they're finally on their way of getting to getting the one thing they've wanted their entire lives. 
you can imagine why they would be enamored by the gift, right? Sometimes I think we're so blinded by the good gifts God gives us, we become so wrapped up in the gifts themselves that we don't ever take a moment to connect those gifts back to their source. You know, I think one of the challenges, uh, especially those of us living here in the West, especially in America, especially in Los Angeles, is that we're so blessed that we now just expect to have safe, happy, healthy lives. We think that is what life should be, right? We live in LA, so I mean, things must be good. It's like, it's like the weather, right? When it rains, we're like, what is going on, right? Because we're in LA, we expect that it's always gonna be beautiful and sunny. And because of that, we are, in some sense, the most ill-equipped to handle grief and loss and death. Because here in America, we see those things as anomalies. We see those things as things that shouldn't happen to us. Or we see those things as like, like they're disturbances in the force. It's no wonder there's a direct correlation between the wealth of a country and that country's stress, anxiety, and discontentment levels. Because when your default expectation is that life should be perfect, prosperous, and meaningful, then anything less than that is a disappointment. Um, you know, our kids, they are blessed to have um, an aunt and an uncle who are in the entertainment industry and who can get them VIP treatment whenever they go to Disneyland, okay? And we've been to Disneyland with them once, and it was, it was life-changing. It was amazing, okay? Um, never had to wait in lines. We had a tour guide the entire day. We could ride, repeat rides over and over again. Um, but we realized at the end of that day that that actually ruined our family forever, okay? Because, uh, like, a few weeks later, we took our kids to Legoland. We, this time it was, uh, you know, on our dime. We spent all this money. And we're in a line, and we were in the line for 10 minutes, and our kids are like, oh, what is going on here? And I was like, are you serious? Like, you know, like, spoiled, ungrateful, you know. I was like, what is going on? And all of a sudden, what to most would have been this incredible gift suddenly looks extremely ordinary. And when we start to take the ordinary things in life for granted, it chokes gratitude from our lives. You see, the default expectation Jesus sets for life is that in this life, there will be trouble. He doesn't say, in this life, you will be healthy. He doesn't say, in this life, you will have all your needs met. He doesn't say, in this life, you will, you will re reach all your goals. He says, in this life, there will be trouble. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, unless we understand that nothing we have is a given, even the air we breathe, the clothes on our back, the food we get to enjoy, unless we start to see all of these things as an undeserved gift of grace, again, all it's going to do is continue to choke gratitude out of our lives. Okay? So if these are the things that make gratitude very difficult, how do we cultivate a heart of gratitude? Okay, this is the last point. 
How do we cultivate a heart of gratitude? Not just being grateful sometimes, but actually becoming grateful people. And the answer is that you have to make it a part of your daily life. You can't just wait for good things to happen for you to express gratitude, or your gratitude will become purely reactionary. You'll wait for that prayer request to be answered. You'll wait for the job. You'll wait for the significant other before you say thank you. You need to carve out space now to reflect on God's goodness and create new rituals that push you to practice gratitude even in the moments when you feel like you have nothing to be thankful for. It's just like the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's a way in which you can practice your way into love, joy, peace, and kindness, and so forth, right? And this is so important because everything right now in our culture is teaching us, training us, habituating us away from gratitude and pushing us toward comparison, discontentment, self-sufficiency, and entitlement, okay? And it's not just thinking about it, because thinking about it is not enough. I'm pretty sure if I were one of the nine lepers who got healed, who didn't turn back, I'm pretty sure when I saw my hands and they were like clean, I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus, inside my head, okay? The other nine, I'm sure, felt grateful at some point, but the difference in the 10th leper is that he didn't just think it, he expressed it. He said it aloud. He used his words and his body. He fell at Jesus' feet and he said, thank you. What would that look like for us? Incorporating daily rhythms and rituals that allow us to actually express our gratitude and in doing so, connect all the good gifts we have to their source, okay? I feel very ashamed of saying this as a pastor, but I don't always pray before every meal, okay? Confession time, okay? Um, and because some, sometimes I'm so hungry, I'm like, God, God knows my heart, you know? He knows I'm thankful, and I just start eating, right? But I realize that these kinds of rituals are not there so that we can feel more religious. They're actually there to be momentary opportunities for us during the day to just stop in the busyness of our lives, to just pause and to say, this food I'm about to eat is a gift from a good giver who provides for me. Thank you. And even in that small way, we habituate ourselves into gratitude. Okay, and I would encourage you, find a ritual that works for you. You know, some people I know um, keep a gratitude journal where every day, regardless of the kind of day they've had, they just write down three quick things that they're thankful for, right? Um, I know someone who every Monday morning uh, before they start the week, They'll send three messages, either text or email, to three different people who they're grateful for, and they'll tell them why they're grateful for them. And, and this person said, I, I decided to do this on Monday mornings especially because I know that the first thing I'm going to do when I get into the office on Monday morning is complain, grumble, and fill my mind with negativity. And he said, doing this just had such a profound impact on my relationships and my overall disposition at work. Right, so find something that works for you. You know, the great irony of this story is that the one who seemingly had the least to look forward to had the best outcome. 
You see, Luke, he brings attention to the fact that the one who turned back was the only one in the group who was a Samaritan. And he highlights that point. And at first you think maybe that's just a throwaway detail, but then Jesus highlights it again when he says, has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And this is really important because you have to understand, even among the lepers, the Samaritan is at the absolute bottom of the totem pole. In fact, for this man, being healed of leprosy was great, but it didn't change his life that much. Because even after he's healed, he still would not be accepted into the temple. He still would not have access to the community the other nine would. If anything, this man probably had community for the first time when they were lepers together, and now what little community he had is gone. This man is on the bottom of the bottom, and yet somehow it's this man who's the only one in the story who gets to see Jesus for who he really is. You know, I talked to a single mom during the pandemic. She has an eight-year-old son, just a year older than my daughter, uh, who was born with a rare um, and severe developmental disorder. And none of the schools in her district had the resources to be able to provide um, her son with the resources and the support he needed. Um, so she'd been homeschooling him for a few years. And she was sharing with me about an experience she had at a virtual PTA meeting right when everything shut down in 2020. And she was telling me like the parents on the call were unraveling. You know, they were talking about how hard virtual education was, how heartbreaking it was for them to see their kids isolated from their friends. And you know what this mom said to me? She said, Jason, I had to hold my tongue because what I really wanted to say was, when this is all over, your kids are all going to go back to school. When this is all over, your kids are going to be reunited with their friends. But nothing's going to change for my son. This is and has always been his reality. He's always been on his own. He's always been isolated. It's always just been me and him at home. And sure enough, when things did go back to normal and she saw posts of her friend's kids going back to school, going back to their friend's birthday parties, she said at first she felt an intense anger toward God and then a deep sadness for her son. This sense of injustice that he was never going to have the life these other kids had. But then one night she told me she was holding her son before bed and suddenly she got this overwhelming sense of the father holding her, saying to her, I know the pain of watching your son suffer. I know what injustice feels like. I know what abandonment and isolation and loneliness feels like. And she said the words of Romans 8.32 came to mind. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
And she felt like in that small way it was God saying, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering anymore. But until then, I promise to hold you as you hold your son. And she said the only words she could muster in that moment were thank you. Thank you. It's often to those who seemingly have the least to be thankful for that Jesus offers the greatest gift, himself, his presence, his nearness. This man, at the end of the day, was no better than the other nine. He was simply more aware of his need. And it was this desperate need for the grace of God that ultimately fueled his gratitude. This morning... Um, I imagine that all of us find ourselves in different locations in the story. You know, I think some of us today maybe are, at the, are, are like the lepers at the beginning of the story. We're calling out to Jesus because we have a need and we're asking God to meet that need. And I'm going to encourage you this, this afternoon, take a moment to pause and thank God before the miracle. Thank God before you get the desired outcome. Thank God before you get what you came here wanting. Some of us, I think, are in the middle of the story, where we're like the ten lepers who look down and find that we've been healed. We're seeing that our prayers are being answered. We got the thing we've been asking for. We got the job. We got the relationship. You know, we got the degree. We got the thing that we've been hoping for. We got the healing. I encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, pause Turn around and remember the giver behind the gifts. And maybe some of you feel like the Samaritan. You suffered a loss that can't be recovered in this life. Or you're in a season when you feel particularly alone. I want you to know that Jesus saves the best parts of himself for you. That Jesus stands next to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. That he's with you. He's Emmanuel. Whoever you resonate with in this story, God invites us to return to the one from whom all blessings flow. May we use this opportunity to pause and to thank God for his goodness, his love, and his mercy that pursues us all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Before we close, I just want to give us a couple moments. To just thank God. Thank God for his provision, his faithfulness in both big and small ordinary ways. Thank God for conversations the people in our lives. But most importantly, take a moment to thank God for himself, for his presence.
Lord, we come to you this day. We thank you for this space that you've given us where we can be made aware of all the ways you've been so good and faithful to us. Lord, forgive us that in our busyness and in, in our distracted, um, in our in the midst of our distracted lives, we so often fail to see even the ordinary gifts that you give us every single day. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you for your Son, through whom we can now have a relationship with you, the Healer the giver of all good gifts, the one who satisfies every need and every longing in our souls. God, help us to become people of gratitude. Help us to embody that gratitude everywhere we go, that we would know and we would live life in such a way that the world could see a community of people who understand that everything we have Nothing we have can be taken for granted and everything we have is an undeserved gift of grace. We thank you for your love, your faithfulness, and your presence. We entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.